Welcome back to the Lunchtime Catch-Up Podcast. This is part two of our countdown. Uh, we're now covering uh, players 10 to 1 in our decade of 2000-2010 uh, for the Essendon Football Club. Uh, we do have a, a very sorrowful Grant Hill uh, that cannot make this podcast. Uh, he is having major Telstra internet issues at the moment, so uh, he'll, he'll hopefully be back soon. Uh, but I do have Nackers from Bomber Blitz to, who joins me on the podcast. How are you going, Nackers? Uh, yeah, good, thanks. Neil's another name. Neil's the other <laughs> name as well. <laughs> yeah, very good. I, I heard a rumour that, um, that uh, Grant actually left Scott out of his top 20 altogether and that's why he got, <laughs> that's, a, yeah, yeah. He got canned again like he did with Gary O'Donnell last, uh, last uh, series. Yeah, no so rumour in that? Putting Gary O'Donnell at number 11 still, it's still... It's pretty still stinging to Gary. He's mentioned to me even this week. So uh, I also want to have uh, uh, welcome Rowan Connolly from Footyology. How are you going, Rowan? Very well. Uh, just like to point out, I am wearing the same top I wore last week, but I have washed it in between <laughs> episodes. So yeah, sure. I think I can smell it from here. Nah, well, it's you know I've been known to wear things a bit too long, but I did I did definitely put it in the washing machine. And uh, for those interested, you can uh, check out Rowan Connolly's top 20 songs uh, yesterday or the day before. Was it Smells Like Team Spirit and today that was, Surrender? That was yesterday. Today was Surrender by Cheap Trick and that was number 13. So number 12 to go. It's 12 to go. And we're, finally, we, we uh, welcome back the superstar half forward, half, uh, half back, uh, wherever you want to. He's, he was a star there. Scotty Lucas. How are you, Scotty? Very good, thanks, Scott. Great to be back. Now, did Grant have Gary O'Donnell at eleven? Yeah, he, he he did. Now, Rowan, did you have? Was it at two? Yeah. yeah, I think I, I got. I think I was a bit closer to the mark, Scott. I, absolutely, and that's why I had to deal with Grant through the week. <laughs> <laughs> As you should. Look to kickstart off. I actually want to do something a little bit different, just to have a two three minute conversation with you, Scott, uh, to start off. Last week we were mentioning about the 2000 North Melbourne Essendon final where we basically blitzed them. And for me, that was more the, probably the most complete game I've seen Essendon play maybe in this decade uh, to have such quality opponents. Uh, Kerry, North Melbourne, we all know how talented it was. Being in a final and to win, well, to win so convincingly. Uh, I just kind of wanted to share your thoughts on on your experience of the day. Um, and just as, as you're talking, just to obviously some few highlights here of, of the game. Um, obviously the first highlight I made sure was you, mate. <laughs> Good work. Smart. <laughs> Always get your guest on side. <laughs> so how, how did this, how did you find this day kind of evolve? And, and it was, did you ever feel like there was a reason why you guys were just so on song in this game? Uh, look, not so much this game, but the finals in general. I think Sheeds often refers to it, you know, I think did we win by 20 goals, 10 goals, 10 goals. Like the cumulative uh, winning margin of that final series is perhaps the greatest ever. We built up to the finals really, really well. Um, specifics can sometimes, well, for me, escape me. But I do remember round 21, we played the Bulldogs. The game, you know, we were going, we we're unbeaten at that stage. I think uh, Sheeds was happy for that game to unfold as it did. I think he could have done more to win the game if he wanted, but I think he was happy to just let it meander and he wasn't disappointed, certainly, when we lost. 
it gave him an opportunity just to refocus us and really, you know, have a crack where it would have been much harder if we won that game by a goal or two and taking nothing away from the dogs. But if you have a narrow win, you, you roll on to the next week. But that just gave us a chance to sharpen up and almost see that if we don't play near our best, we can get beaten still. So complacency wasn't able to set in or was really uh, not at the forefront. Then the next week against Collingwood, Sheeds rested from memory five or six senior players. We had to fight really hard in that game. I think we might have won by six or seven goals in the end, but for a long time, there wasn't a lot in that game. So allowing those guys to rest was important. But once again, we had a real challenge. So we'd had a couple of tough weeks, which is good. We tailored our training differently than in 99. I think we rested quite a bit during the, the first final and the preliminary final. Uh, and I think we might have tapered our training slightly overall, whereas this time we trained really hard <clears throat> right up until that preliminary final and just kept going. Yeah. So I think it held us in good stead. So our training was all geared towards that. And look, no doubt, a point to prove after the year before. Yep. There's, two, there's two, two images from this game stick in my head and they both involve North Melbourne. The first one was uh, David King actually kicked the first goal of the game and um, shouldn't have too big a go at him because he played a ripper. He kicked seven goals for him. But I always remembered he kicked that first goal and he was so up about it. He ran back to the centre doing this big windmill thing with his arm. And I've spent the last 20-odd years giving him grief about it. The other one was, I think, late in the last quarter, you know, the margin over 100 points. They cut to the bench and... Wayne Carey was sitting on the bench yawning his head off, you know, and it was sort of, it was a, a pretty sort of symptomatic of just how dominant Essendon was. You know, like, a, you, you're right, Scotty. I mean, there's been, um, what was the margin? 120-something, wasn't it? I mean, we're, yes. we're, there's, there's been a couple of finals victories around that mark. In fact, Essendon beat Collingwood by 133 in the 84 preliminary. But, you know, that that day was as dominant an Essendon performance as I can remember. I just against, as you said, Scotty, against a team of that calibre. And that really, you know, look, North, to their credit, recovered and won the semi, but they then got smashed again by Melbourne in the preliminary. And that really was the end of them as a, um, you know, a, a premiership chance, really. Yeah, and we obviously just saw before a, a Scotty Lucas damaging handball, which is uh, obviously... <laughs> You know, <clears throat> reputation precedes him. So, uh, playing wasn't it? It was a ground ball pickup and just spotted <laughs> up a target. Should have kicked it. Should have so, uh, had a shot. Yeah. <laughs> Could have bounced through. So, let's go, uh, let's go straight off the bat. And obviously, we did 20 to um, 11 last week. I just realized I should have had the list of what it was, but sorry, I don't. I realized just then that I actually should have had where we, uh, where we left off. But I'll go quickly go. We'll go to number uh, 10. Uh, number 10 is... I'll be interested to see what you think of this guy, Scotty. Um, he's kind of maligned, I reckon, some by, by Essendon fans, but he was actually one of my favourites. I'm just getting him up now. Uh, in Brett, Brent Stanton, uh, 141 games. Now, just again, just reminding that the stats you're seeing, uh, if there's goals or games... Uh, it is just for that decade alone. So obviously he played a lot more games than that in his career, but this is just his co- contribution to the decade. But for me, he was a, 
a guy that was obviously famous for his gut running uh, and, and Link Campbell uh, always, always was available to um, set up plays, uh, run to space if need be, very offensively more running. Uh, but uh, an interesting one with fans, <laughs> he, he did have his critics, um, but for me, his work rate was through the roof um, as far as helping out a teammate to, to help um, move the ball forward. Uh, and a great team person, great team player, and good to see him. I think he's maybe at Carlton now, uh, being assistant coach, but uh, good to see him still in the game. Uh, I'll go to you, Rowan. Yeah, well, look, I, I think most of us at some stage had an issue here or there, but it got to a stage with me where, I don't know, he's, sort of, he's one of those players, I reckon over all the time I've been watching footy, there'd be guys who will have a game and you they get the ball and they turn it over or they make a mistake and you say oh you know smith what are you doing and then five minutes later you go oh smith smith and then about three quarters of the way through the game you realize that yeah they might have made some mistakes but you've said their name 57 times so they've had a fair bit of involvement in the game and it got to that stage with me with stance where I thought, you know, particularly as Essendon's fortune sort of started to wane, I felt like he remained fairly consistent. Yeah. The other, th- the other thing with him is, look, I, I'm a big, you know, I'm, I'm big on my stats. And I reckon it, when it comes to judging these guys, you've got to put a lot of stock in best and fairest results. They're being judged by the match committee. They see them inside out, week after week after week. And the stats for him, so I, you know, I took a note of everyone's top three finishes and top ten finishes. Yep. So Stance has had um, how many seasons through the decade? Seven. Debuted in 04. So 04 to 10 is seven seasons. In six of the seven seasons, he finished in the top ten in the best and fairest. And he finished top three in three. So, you know, I would argue that he was one of the four or five most consistent players of the decade. And that, for me, I actually had him higher um, than 10. I had him at number eight. Okay. Neil? I had him a little bit lower. I'd have him at 12, but still around the same sort of mark. Um, And I think you've summed up perfectly, Ryan. The the word for Bretton Stanton, to me, is consistency. He... uh, very rarely miss a game. Uh, from 2005 right through to 2015, he played um, uh, 20 or more games or more every season, with the exception of 2005, just played 19, but pretty close, which is second year. And his disposals as well were very consistent. Um, between 22 and 25 every year from 2006, again, right through to 2015. Um, which is often quite unusual for a young player coming to the team to have consistent performances virtually right from the get-go, but that's what, what he was. Um, and as you say, a great runner, particularly offensively. I think if the one of the knocks in them that a lot of fans had, and it'll be interesting to see what Scott's uh, thoughts are on this, but it was more the defensive running that I thought a lot of people, he seemed to um, be great going forward and, while he still tried his, his heart out running defensively, it seemed like he was labouring a bit more. I might have just been uh, that more um, uh, inclined to, to run offensively. But he was also a very good goal kicker. He, um, he contributed between uh, uh, 15 and 20 goals virtually every year as well. And uh, just a great all-round consistent player for a number of years. So uh, 
yeah, worthy of a high top and a spot on this list. So, what are your thoughts, Scott? Yeah, look, I thought he was a fantastic player for the club. Extremely consistent, uh, a hard runner and a hard trainer. Um, I don't know too many midfielders that are great with their defensive running. Um, so he's not on his own there if that's no. the case. But I, look, for me, I certainly didn't see that as an issue with him. He was a finisher and he was such a damaging player centre forward. Uh, mm. So I think use your strength and uh, yeah, a great player for the Essendon Football Club. Consistency is really important as Rowan alluded to. So yeah, fantastic teammate and uh, you're right. Scott, when you said he's working at Carlton now as an assistant coach, I'll give you I'll give you a good, a quickly a good example of what I'm talking about. That thing about focusing on a guy's errors too much, and I think commentators do this. And I watched the '89 Grand Final again recently, and um, Don Scott, and he was prone to do this. He spent the entire game picking on Andrew Buse. and uh, so Buse would get the ball and he'd go, you know, Buse is doing this and he's doing that. And then at some stage in the last quarter, you go, Jesus, he's talked about Buse every second sentence, you know. And then you look at the stats. Buse has had, you know, more touches than anyone else. And you look at it again in retrospect. And he's actually had huge influence. And I reckon we, I'm not used perhaps, Scotty, but we as, you know, fans or pundits are sometimes too inclined to focus on a couple, on the two disposal errors the guy makes mm-hmm and ignore the eight where he's hit the target or kicked to advantage, you know? And you've got to you've got to really look at the whole box and dice, not just yeah. look at a couple of things here and there. I think we're all like that in general. I know with mm. the commentating I've done, there's players you really like that do less yeah. than your like for them deserves. And there's players <laughs> that do more, yet you just have that bias for whatever uh-huh. reason... Yeah, the way that they go about it or their demeanour or there's just something. And Pat, your point on Andrew Buse, there's probably something Don Scott may have seen him do one day that he didn't like or he didn't race. And then that becomes his whipping boy from yeah. then on, which it, which it just isn't correct. And I think that's always the challenge. But I think um, Stance's contribution was exceptional. I used to think the yeah. same thing about uh, the, the flack that Brendan Goddard used to get, even at Essendon, and you'd play that defensive role. Now, I thought there was, I won't say who, a couple of defenders that played way too safe, kicking down the line 50 metres every time, and we got very predictable. Uh, you can, games that we went to Perth and everything, everything got very predictable. And I always just think, business person is a fan, Goddard was one of the ones that actually tried to a little bit dare uh, for some reward to get us offensively going. And now, eight, two out of those 10 kicks might not come off, but I actually liked his mental approach more than... than uh, I guess some of our other very very safe slow kicks. Um, that was just that was just me. Anyway. No, it's a good point, <laughs> and I think the players that do fall into the category of getting maligned a bit are the ones that that are the safe, consistent types. The uh, a lot of fans, in particular, love the the uh, really excitement in machines that can pull off the uh, amazing things, and they and they seem to be cut a lot more slack than the players that just consistently put in week in week out, and which was what Stance used to do. So let's go to number nine. Uh, actually, one of my favourite players, um, and it'll be interesting to debate this one, uh, David Hill at, at number nine. Uh, I think I might have had him even at, at number eight myself. I really, really rated him. Uh, I thought he was one of the best mobile 
ruckman I'd seen uh, and very stand-up person. And this is just from a, as being a fan from afar, but uh, he was obviously standing captain when Lloyd had that uh, cruel injury in 2006. <clears throat> But he was a 2000 best in eight, uh, so best and fairest in 2008. I think he came second in another year that he was really, really close on when Heard won, but I'll try and remember that year. But played 165 games for the, uh, for the decade, 123 goals. So he has contributed on the scoreboard well. Uh, but a good mark, uh, really good competitor, um, and just a physique that I was pretty much jealous of, to be honest. He was, he was a real specimen to look at and... Uh, and I remember even um, just a few games, even on one on Anzac Day, he, he really took the game apart. And I, I loved watching him play. Yeah, look, he, um, yeah, I'm, I, I was a fan. I, I'm just trying to remember, I hope it wasn't this same podcast, but I, there was a discussion I remember hearing people talking about Hill and um, he perhaps never got a, a clear enough run at it. I don't know. One sort of constant with Sheeds' coaching has been this sort of, what's the word, equivocation over Ruckman. There hasn't been many times we've had sort of one Ruckman, one out, who has been allowed to sort of, you know, you're the Ruckman, you go for it. You know, it happened back with Paul Salmon. It was why he left the club. And I sort of had that feeling that, you know, had enough of those Ruck responsibilities been entrusted to Hill you know, on a permanent basis, he would have been even better. Um, just on that best and fairest thing, the, the year he won it was the only top three finish he had, but he did finish uh, top 10 four times. So okay. I, I think during a difficult era, I mean, he debuted in 01, so he's come in on the tail end of a good era and he's had to sort of, in, in the years when we were pretty crap, let's be honest, had to <laughs> carry a lot of the burden Missed that, whole, missed that whole year, of course, in 09 when he did, did the knee on yeah. Anzac Day. Um, but, yeah, look, I, I, think, I think he was a pretty solid contributor. The other thing, too, you know, I'm not a big fan of Ruckman resting forward and trying to be goal kickers. And I, more often than not, I don't think it works. But my memory of him is that when he went forward, he was quite capable of kicking some goals. In fact, I saw... Um, it must have been on YouTube, and I hadn't seen it for ages, but highlights of the 04, our last finals victory, 04 elimination final. And his role in the last quarter of that up forward was critical. Kicked two of the goals that got us over the line. So, yeah, I, I was a fan. Um, I had him personally, I had him a little bit lower. I had him at 11, but close enough to where he's come in on aggregate. Yep. Neil? Yeah, I had him at uh, number nine and I had him a little bit higher than uh, uh, the new Rome, but they're all around about the same sort of mark. You could, a few of these players, you could, you could uh, quite easily shift one or two places. Um, yeah, a very good, solid player, as you said, he, uh, Scott, the, uh, Scott Meese. He had a fantastic uh, physique, um, great mobility, uh, could mark, was good in the ruck and also really good around the uh, goals as well. He... Uh, Kicked uh, 20 or more goals in a year three times. Um, considering they didn't actually spend that much time forward, that was a great effort. He uh, always seemed to me like he was going to be right on the brink of, of having the breakthrough to be becoming one of the really dominant ruckmen in the league and never quite got there. I'm not quite sure what held him back. Um, but uh, overall, just a, a really good, solid ruckman. Um, 
that uh, played a lot of games in the 90s. Uh, what did he come up with? 149 games. Um, and, and really the best, Essendon's best ruckman for, you know, maybe the last 20 years. So um, a, a good addition to the list. Uh, yeah, spot on. Yeah, fantastic. And, and Rowan, I thought really critical with Hilly was his ability to go forward. And I think in that final, he might have kicked three for the game, a couple in the last quarter to almost ice it. Um, and your point with Sheeds is an interesting run, Rowan, because the year he won the best and fairest and had his only top three was Matthew Knight's first year as coach. Now, I don't know whether that's mm. more a coincidence than anything in that he was able to, he just mm. reached that level of maturity when he yeah. was ready to go. But um, yeah, he played a critical role. I mean, the importance of the Ruckman is, uh, is well known and Hilly was able to do that and roll forward as well. Well, it's pretty typical of Sheeds, isn't it? I mean, if you think over his entire coaching history, and don't, don't worry, I mean, the pros far outweigh the cons, but he did, he did have a tendency times to over-meddle a bit, and I think in terms of flexibility too, and particularly once he sort of enshrined that reputation of throwing the chess pieces around after the 84 win. I think sometimes people are a bit critical of his tendency to do that. And when you think about it, most of his sides, apart from you know, a, a um, goal-kicking spearhead, i.e. Lloydie, um, or, you know, even the Ruckman. He, he wanted to have options up his sleeve with virtually everyone. And, you know, that became more critical as time went on. But occasionally, I think he might have just overdone it a bit. And I think we paid the price for that as a club with Paul Salmon. And maybe in, uh, also with other players, just in terms of them... Um, ending up being sort of jacks of all trades and masters of none. Does that make sense? Yep. And actually talking about him not quite reaching the heights, um, he was a bit unlucky. He had the 2008, which when he won the best in Death Ferris and was by far his best year. And then uh, on Anzac Day the following year is when he did his knee. And yeah. he was playing really good football up to that. So um, if not for that knee injury, he might have... Uh, done what a lot of Ruckman do later in their careers and really taken the next step and being one of the... Really well, the, and, and the other irony there, Neil, is that that launched Paddy Ryder as the, yeah. As yeah. the Ruckman. So then he yeah. had someone else to sort of battle with for that. Yeah. yeah. Well, who can forget uh, Paddy Ryder's game on Anzac Day after he went down? That was one well, of the... I voted for him for the Anzac yep. medal. Mm. <laughs> oh, maybe maybe that's what I was thinking of with the Anzac Day performance. Oh, they, I remember, I thought it was David. Well, he did. He played a critical role. He got injured. <laughs> he got injured. <laughs> he the man of the match moving to the rut. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's go to number eight. Uh, uh, famous name at the club. Uh, regarded as, uh, as probably one of the better leaders, I would say, at the club. Uh, not Obviously, not, never really was captain, but I always felt like, as the decade went on, he got better. And uh, again, this is from afar. I, it felt like he's, uh, the later the decade went, he matured as a person and footballer. Uh, and he's played, he, I mean, in the 2007, I think six, seven and eight seasons, he, he came on really, really strong. And he was a very dynamic player. Uh, 99 goals, so he can definitely kick a goal. Uh, can play in various positions. He is, can be a little bit of a, you know, Mr. Fix-It um, kind of player. 197 games. So he, he has played a lot of the decade. Uh, but look, wonderful player. 
from all accounts, and I'll, I'll go to you, Scotty, wonderful person uh, that matured really well, really well. And um, uh, I mean, even even just on a side note, even with the Asada stuff, there's a lot of stuff where Mick Bay was a leader as much as Job in, in a lot of things. So um, uh, he's a he's a person of high quality, and again, a bit like Stanton is um, is still in the football industry, uh, assistant at. Uh, yeah, he's a big giant. Yeah, fantastic line coach there and uh, plays a critical role. And I think it's a good... I mean, there's very few players that aren't leaders at an AFL club that are then able to go on and coach. You really need to be a prominent leader as a player for that to continue. Uh, Spike was a fantastic player. I mean, early 2000s, he, he really found a role as a back pocket. He was able to lock down the opposition's best small forward, which really was not what he was drafted as. So to be able to apply himself to that role and really be a prominent player for us was critical. And then in time after that, he went into the midfield and was able to rest up forward and became a prolific mid, winning big numbers. Uh, he was a great kick, left footer, uh, loved to lead to him and uh, a fantastic guy and a fantastic player who was so passionate about the Essendon Football Club uh, and still is, I'm sure. Yeah. I, I reckon... Um... I reckon he's another guy who probably personally paid a bit of a price for Essendon's demise in that he had to play a variety of roles. Um, because, you know, had he been allowed to spend his whole career or the vast bulk of his career as an on-baller, you know, I reckon he would have done that job really well and perhaps been recognised as a better on-baller than he was. Good you know, he did, it, he did it off half-back. He did it... Uh, occasionally up forward, you know, he had a pretty good leap and uh, pretty good um, vertical leap for his size too. Took some real speckies over the years. And another one uh, who measures up in terms of consistency too. So he's had one top three um, BNF finish, but five top tens in the 11 years we're talking about. So in a decade that wasn't great for the club, you know, he was as consistent, certainly in the top, 10 players for consistency and the leadership stuff, Scotty. You know, he, um, mm. we began to lack leadership and he was one of the senior blokes who was a very obvious leadership figure at the club. So, yeah, I, I had him... Um, what number's he come in? Eight. 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 Uh, yeah, I had him at nine. So, yeah, as good as the same thing. No. Yeah. I, I had him at eight myself, so I was right on the general consensus there. Um, yeah, the thing I remember most about him is just a beautiful left foot kick particularly over a, a shorter distance from, um, say, the 20 to 40 metre mark. He'd have a great low trajectory on it. Um, but he was another one of his players that was really as tough as nails. And um, as you said before, Scott, he was uh, very passionate about the club and uh, was always willing to, uh, to fight, the, fight for the side. Um, yeah, if, if he did manage to get more time in the midfield, it was a bit unfortunate that he spent as much time did in the back line because he really did develop into a into a critical player when he did go for when he did go into the midfield and there was a period there where I thought he was one of our uh, most important players um, mm. it's interesting that Essendon's ha had a bit of a habit of uh, having these uh, back pocket type players turn into great uh, great players in their own right um, he had himself uh, Gary O'Donnell uh, Mark Thompson and uh, Mark uh, Mark Johnson still to come um, it's funny how that's worked out. That the well, it's a good, it, it's a good um, training ground. Wanganui. to learn. 
say it again, Scotty. Wanganine as well. Well, Wanganine, yeah, yeah. yes, of course. Yeah. Earlier. It's a good training ground to learn the sort of defensive skills that as a midfielder can come in really handy. So you can... McGrath um, today too, yeah. Well, where did the yeah. coach start his career yeah. and where well, did he exactly. start? That's a, no, that, that is a magnificent point because, um, yeah, I mean, what, you know, like I'm so old, I saw Sheeds in the 73 grand mm. final kick three goals in the first mm. quarter, you know. So he was seen as being a player of pretty average skills and worked his bum off. But those defensive skills served him well when he went onto the ball and he, you know, began to creep forward and kick goals, you know. So, yeah, no, spot on. It's a really good point. I wonder if it was something to do with Sheedy that was that he was able to take these players and and develop particularly those defensive type players and then develop their all round skills to become uh, great contributors exactly as Sheeds did. I don't know if you have well, she, Sheeds is recognised generally as one of the best. I was going to say self made, but you know a guy who at the start didn't have terrific skill but made himself into a very yeah. skilled player. Isn't I don't reckon you necessarily get that many of them. Yeah. No. No, not too often. Well, uh, it was a good segue before because uh, speaking of Mark Johnson, <laughs> he comes in at number seven. Uh, Mark Johnson is a, is a really interesting one. I mean, the fact that he is number seven is, is one of those ones where it's a full credit to him because his journey started... Very much, I, if I remember, and I'll get Rowan, you to test me out here. I thought he's tested more like in the amateur leagues or, or through, or came through, um, not rookie systems, but I'll, I'm trying BFL. to remember now. He came, from, he came from the call to Cannons and he played as, I think it was a sub-list player then. So it's like yeah. he wasn't drafted, but he came along and played in the reserves in 98. Yep. Maybe, I think, Maybe or maybe not 97, but certainly in 98, he was playing in the reserves whilst he was working as a builder and then oh, just played such good footy in the VFL that he got an opportunity on the list in 99. I think in 99, he played quite a few games, but a little bit off the bench. Games. Yeah, 15, when, yeah. But, but when you came off the bench, you might play a quarter or a half. So mm. he really went from that player in 99 that was finding his way to being, well, a critical player in 2000, absolutely in the back pocket. We know the role he played on Jeff Farmer in the grand final. And then to turn himself into a best and fairest winner two years later, fantastic player, tough, tough. I mean, we spoke last week about the 2000 team, but that was one of the toughest back lines mm. that I think have ever played the game. <laughs> Right. Yeah, absolutely. It was, and again, another one in the image of Sheedy. I mean, that yeah. 2000 side. I think I said this last week, but it, in terms of the skill and the toughness, the only comparison I can think of is Richmond of '73 and '74, which Sheeds mm. was a part of. I mean, yeah. Look, I'll I'll go. Uh, fantastic, uh, self-made player, also known as Mr. Sunbury, of course, for that win in the. Um, <laughs> Bodybuilding, junior bodybuilding <laughs> competition. That's I, right. I did a, um, I, I did a whole series of legends interviews for Essendon uh, two years ago, and we got the two Johnsons together, and it was, geez, it was good fun. But we, yeah, it was just spending the whole thing, everyone hanging shit on each other, basically. Mister Sunbury, and no, he he was a fantastic back pocket, and another guy who later on in his career would very, very occasionally get swung forward, and. 
remember there was a game we got absolutely smashed by Richmond at the MCG, but uh, Mark Johnson took an absolute ball tear of a mark right in the goal square. Um, you know, so so he he was a guy whose his skills got better the longer he played, tough as nails. Great guy, you know, the, both of Johnson's are terrific guys, just in terms of his, um, uh, I guess, consistency over the journey. So two top three finishes, including winning it in 02, and um, four top 10 finishes. And, uh, you know, a lot of games... I've got 179 games for the decade. Your figures seem to be totally different to mine, Scott, for some reason. But um, I, don't, I think, I, I think you included 2010. My original figures went up to 2009 and you added an extra decade somehow or other. Well, and anyway, an extra year. He was in the top five for games played over the decade. So um, number seven is exactly where I had him. So happy with that one. Neil? I had him at number seven as well. So... Just proves you're a great judge. Oh, they're wrong. So did you say one seven nine games? Yeah. That's what I had, didn't I? Yep. Yep. Uh, yep is that wrong? Is it? And oh, Forty-two okay. goals. Yep. Okay. No, the last one. The last one was different. Anyway, don't okay. worry. Keep going. <laughs> yep. The uh, the other thing about him, uh, as you see, is one of these players that really took his chance from being a supplementary list player. From uh, once he mm. uh, became a permanent member of the team from. Uh, 2000, he played 24, 23, 24, 24, 20, 22, 22, 20 games, right up to 2007. So uh, really took his chance and uh, and was very consistent during that period. Talking about him being thrown forward, Rowan, he kicked 29 goals in uh, 2005 and 17 in 2004. So that's uh, uh, 29 goals is a very well, handy. In 05, might have just well, about won the goal kicking with that, did he? Yeah. <laughs> Probably not too far from those years. Well, he was a little bit like to our earlier conversation about back pockets. He started off there, but then as the 2000s went on, he played yeah. a bit more yeah. half back and through the, he could play through the midfield. Yeah. So starts and off with a grounding. Line. Yeah, and then yeah. through the forward yeah. line. And of course, his, um, his brother David played at Geelong and. Yeah. Um, one of the great things of this interview, did you? Oh, you'd know, Scotty, but he actually has a brother called Jason. Mm. And uh, people, <laughs> even people he knew, would come up to him and go, Oh, how's Jason going? And he'd just start talking about J- JJ at Essendon, presuming they meant him. And they said, No, no, I mean your brother, Jason. <laughs> uh, so well, call, let's just call it Bruce to keep it clear. One thing about Mark Johnson is uh, I remembered he, he took a number of hangers. Like he was actually yeah. quite a, when he wanted to be, he could really, uh, a bit like, I guess, McVeigh. He could, he he could mind for them. Yeah, he, he liked a good old Mark. But um, I, I, for me, um, he was a guy that got the best out of himself. And, and you know, when we had mm. talked about O'Donnell uh, in the last sort of series, it's kind of very similar to me. It's kind of similar, mm. slow, it's kind of slow start. And then as it just, it just built momentum um, then quite rapidly uh, about his importance to the side and, and him just getting every possible bit out of himself. Uh, and they're the kind of guys you love in your team. Well, also like uh, Donald, it really took him probably about three years, as, uh, as Scott mentioned before, play, just playing in the reserves for a number of years to really hone his craft. And then when he did get in, just like Gary O'Donnell, he, uh, he was in for good and was a, an, an integral part of the side. So let's go, we'll try and keep the momentum going. <laughs> so, so let's go to number six, uh, very highly decorated player. I'll just get this up. Okay, Mr. Joe Watson. Now, it's interesting because uh, 
Mr. Lucas, you, I don't know if this is going to make you uh, angry or, or smile or whatever, but I remember saying last year to Grant uh, that Scotty Lucas actually always reminded me of Joe Watson. And, I've, and he asked me why. And I said, well, I said, every time Joe kind of talks, um, I, I said, it kind of reminded me of Lucas, how they, they think about the game, think about life. I said, he, obviously, Lucas has his not-so-obvious you know, kind of mantra. And I kind of always felt like Joby. I mean, he's wearing a feminist cap at a, <laughs> at a presser. You know, he, he does think about life differently. Um, and, and he always actually, I don't know why, but maybe the not so obvious was more just a segment and, and maybe not so much yourself. Uh, but I kind of just had this linking with you guys, how you, you're quite, um, astute about the game about life um and i always felt like there was a bit of a kindred kind of way of of thinking anyway well i won't i can't comment on me i (laughs) i don't know but for joe um yeah look he always uh for someone who loved footy also had incredible balance like he had other interests uh that he liked to pursue so he had great balance whereas you know some captain or some players are just footy heads he liked to switch off from it but whilst there was flat chat. And look, he made, he's a classic example. We spoke about Sheeds early, but he made himself into a footballer at the end of 05. I mean, through 03, he came in, he played his game as a half forward. 04, 05, he was basically playing as a half forward and in the reserves as a centre half forward. I still remember going to watch him play in a final in the twos in 05 at Port Melbourne and he played centre half forward. And then it's been well documented. He went away at the end of 05 and I think his dad might have said, well, do you want to be an AFL footballer? And then he did a lot of boxing. Uh, He really stripped weight, changed his body shape, which allowed him to go into the midfield. And there was no better clearance player for, you know, that five or six years or seven years that he dominated the game and, Mm. and, you know, won a Brownlow. And then... If, you, if anything, I mean, the drug saga, for me, elevated his leadership with the way that he handled that and was able yeah. to play in the face of so much adversity throughout that time. I mean, the West Coast game was a great example where he was booed a lot, I think, for comments he made on, on the couch earlier that week, where yeah, yeah. all he was booed for was being entirely honest. Um, yeah. And then he played the sort of game that he did, which just showed... Despite all the pressure he was under, he was able to deliver in big moments. And he was a great player for the football club. I wanted to ask you, Scotty, there's, um, there's always that story about <clears throat> the Sheeds last season. I think he got dropped, didn't he? And there was... Mm. What happened there? Was there like a... Did they sort of get tired of each other or what happened? Um, oh, look, I think Sheeds uh, liked, liked a lot of speed through the midfield. Uh, and let's be honest, Joe wasn't a quick player. Um, no. Nor was Greg Williams, and he was reasonably handy also. But if we look at it, um, I think Sheets and coaches are like that. There's just certain types of players they love and don't like and yeah. that go to other clubs and become great players. And that's it really is opinion-based. Um, and for whatever reason, I think uh, Sheets took a while to be won over with Job and then... I think the end of 07 was just a really messy time for the club. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, players were dropped and, um, yeah, it just wasn't great for anyone. And I think Joe bore the brunt of that a little bit for perhaps uh, what was thought to to have been said or wasn't said. 
Um, but he played some great football under Sheeds. I think he was runner-up in 06 in the best and fairest. So he was able to show Sheeds what he could do. And then he, he was, you know, if, if you buy 08, he's five years into his career, really hit his prime under Matthew Knights and then Purdy and Bomber. I, I was going to say, I mean, like Matthew Knights cops a lot of stick from Essendon people generally. and Because he wasn't Sheeds. Yeah, exactly. And, mm. and look, three seasons... Um, Got him to a finals series, uh, even in 08, you know. And people were critical of that attack first sort of formula, but I liked it. You know, I liked the brand of footy Essendon played under him. I, I was just going to make the point that Job is an obvious example of one player, at least, who thrived under Matthew Knights. Not everyone did, but some did, mm. you know? Well, you're, you mentioned run and gun in 08. We're still having that conversation around this team or this club, <laughs> yeah. aren't we? Yeah, 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 yeah. I know. So, they did play. And it's a long, and, it, and he hasn't been the coach for a long, long time. Uh, yeah, they did play some incredibly exciting football during that run and gun time. Yeah, and I, yeah. I, I, I'm with you, Rowan. I uh, to to win a premiership, you've generally got to do something different to what the other teams are doing. It's no point always trying to copy what the current success league brand is because somebody else is just going to come up with something different. And I felt the, uh, <laughs> he didn't really get the support of the, uh, a lot of maybe the senior members of the team and the administrators there, which um, I think they turned against his style. But, you know, if he was given a bit more time, maybe it would have worked. That's a very comforting thing to say, Neil, given that we've now got Ben Rutten and Blake Carousella from Richmond <laughs> being studiously trying to... You, uh, picked up on, you, picked, you picked up on my Ryan laugh there. We're copying him right Exactly as I said that. I mean, yeah, we could be just a couple of years too, too late in that as well. But anyway... Yes. But talking about Joe, um, one of the things that I uh, loved about him, and one thing that very few players can do, is that he really made... Um, Sort of uh, time stand still. He he get the ball and and players have run all around him. And uh, one of the other players like that is uh, Heard used to have that bit of effect. But I but I remember watching him sometime and players were just mesmerised by him. And you'd hear often often opposition supporters yell at just somebody go to him, somebody tackle him, but they uh, they couldn't. And he had that great ability with the with that really strong uh, thighs and torso to just shrug a tackle and. Uh, and just weave magic was uh, Scotty, great to watch. Scotty, is there, like a Greg Williams with Job, is there a thought process that a coach would be more obsessed about covering the players that a guy like Diesel or Job would handball to rather than going to Job? Is there any sort of plausible way of looking at that? Because it did look like he had kind of like a, a lot of time, but I wasn't sure if that was almost covering his outlets or or just... Yeah, well, you don't want to... If everyone rushes him to tackle, then he leaves too many outlets. So there is a, a matter of trying to shut down his outlets. But I think just the way that he, you know, he's in, he's in close agility. Pendlebury's the same. They're just able to create time and space for themselves just with their, their agility and their movement. Yeah. And then it's really up to your receivers to know and you should your receivers should always know where the play goes more so than the opposition and then get to those spots quicker yeah fair fair call just last point on job so um, we're talking 2002 10 so he's played uh, eight seasons out of 11 um, five top 10 finishes three top 3 finishes of which two 
were best and fairest, 2009, 2010. Mm-hmm. So, in a way, um, he's probably stiff to be as low as uh, number six in this mm-hmm. list. Mm. I think it's just that is, that is more a comment on the magnificence of the five players above yeah. him on that's that what, list. That's what I was going to say. And, and of those seasons you're talking about, his first three seasons were really a non-issue. Yeah, really. It was yeah. really when he did do that uh, extensive uh, body work to transform his transform his physique. All right, let's keep moving, boys. I'm not ordering breakfast in again <laughs> during this. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go to maybe our last pure mid of the actual countdown. Um, this guy is as tough as nails. Probably started off. I think he started off around '97, if by memory. Um, Jason Johnson and Really, by the time 2000 hit, he just exploded pretty much. And he was as good as they come. Uh, I felt like while he was playing, he was underrated. But maybe later on, on reflection now, he's a bit more rated. I don't know if anyone else gets that gut feel. I never... uh, But two-time best and fairest, premiership player, All-Australian 2001, 169 games in the decade, 107 goals. So could kick a goal. Um, and you even saw with that North Melbourne comeback game how dominant of, of a performance he had, I think, with four goals and about 30 odd possessions. But just a, a fantastic work rate, competitive uh, spirit that you'd, you'd want in any midfielder. One of my all time favorites, uh, and I know a lot of fans just love this guy. And um, yeah, I'll go to you, Rowan. Yeah, well, arguably, AFL football's finest ever chef, um, you know, has created a a food empire. He's done so well for himself. I'll never, forget, I'll never forget going into Carlton one day to do an interview and I just went to get a coffee and, and there's JJ Ball on the uh, counter at the Carlton Social Club. I said, what the hell are you doing here? And he was always sort of embarrassed by it. No, he, he was a fantastic player and debuted late in 97. Um, there was a, a good win we had over Carlton and he burst out of a centre and kicked the goal on the run there. And you thought, yeah. this, this guy's got it. Um, and I think, Scotty, I'm interested in your thoughts on this, but as great as that 2000 lineup was, you know, typical media, the media sort of after a while spent half the season doing the old, so how do you beat Essendon? What are the chinks in Essendon's armour? And it became very popular to say that um, the least glittering of Essendon's array of weapons was the midfield and my memory is that really pissed the midfield off so (laughs) they sort of made it a point of honor to say right you know we're pretty bloody good and we're going to show you and that you know what you say is quite right I mean he's he's explosiveness out of the middle really strong build but the combination of toughness and um, skill and capacity to kick goals you know he, he had it all really one a BNF in uh, what 2001, which was a, a grand final year, so that's always a, a good indicator. Butted up four years later and won it in a poor year, so it showed that he could be a great player in a great side, but a great player in a side that wasn't playing well, which I think is important. And uh, 11 seasons. Now here's the big one for me statistically: six top 10 finishes in the BNF. But five of those six top ten finishers were top three finishers. Mm-hmm. No player in that decade had more top three finishers than Jason Johnson. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, could be argue a bit 
a bit stiff to only be at number five. I, I actually had him at number four. Neil? I had him at number five again on the uh, on my fair. Um, look, I agree he could have been a, a bit stiff, except for the players above him, as we said, of some of the all-time greats of the club. So it's a bit hard. It's very similar um, in his career to Mark Johnson, actually. In his, he played a 97, 8 and 9 and only played three, eight and four games. But it was really in 2000 where he came on and, and was uh, really just a, a very important part of the in midfield. Um, and he was one of the players, uh, one of the most of the, we're talking about all the tough players Essendon had, and a lot of them were in the back line. But he was really the tough player that we had on the ball. And the, uh, someone that had the strength and the power to, to get the ball out, but also the, uh, the skill and speed to uh, use it effectively when he got it too. And, uh, yeah, as you said, with all the uh, BNF finishes, just an incredibly consistent player throughout that time. And I think outside of Essendon and the wider football community, one of them, someone that is really quite uh, underestimated for the value that he did have. But, um, yeah, great player throughout, the, uh, throughout that decade. Was that right, Scotty? Were they really pissed off about that thing about, oh, their midfield's not so good? Yeah, probably they were pissed <laughs> off with the forwards and the backs. <laughs> that we're there. But yeah, it was classic. You got to write about something, so let's try and pick a fault. And it wasn't really a fault if you look at the players that went through there. And sometimes you don't realise, to your point, they can be 12 months to realise how good Jason Johnson is because it's a matter of yeah. the middle of next year. That North Melbourne game, he um, he was basically the Brownlow Medal favourite after that game. He wore a you know the uh, old workers. Um, the, the road works, the fluoro vest. We yeah. put the yellow jersey on him on as the leader of the Tour de France on the uh, the, the week of <laughs> training because he was just to have a bit of fun because he was brown my favourite. Yet you're right, Rowan. You talked about him in 2000. People didn't know him, so they they assumed he wasn't as good as he was. Really yeah. announced himself in the 2000 preseason grand final when he bowled over John Blakey, who took about a week to get up. That's true. <laughs> so yeah. a tough mid. A great player for the footy club and, um, yeah, just so consistent and hard and tough. And I think the point's well made. That 2001 team is the best and fairest in, in a grand final team but was able to back it up with less support around him through the midfield in 05 when the best and fairest then, which I think some of those, sometimes those best and fairest can be underestimated. I mean, if you don't have a lot of help around you, you can be one out and tagged a lot, but he was able to work his way through it. Great player. Talking about that North Melbourne game, Scott, it was a fascinating game. I remember watching it. Even when we were 69 points down, I still believed that we were going to come back and win it. Um, but after that, I was worried to the fact that, that we could get out to that sort of deficit. And I think that was when the confidence in the team really started to wane, from my opinion. Was that was a, you got as a group? It was a last hurrah. I've, I've always, <laughs> I always yeah. rattle off the stats on this. So... The comeback game made it uh, 14 wins from 16 games. Yeah. And the last nine games of that year, including finals, Essendon went 5-4. Yeah. Lost the next week to Port Adelaide. I think lost the week after that to Carlton. Mm. And it was always a bit of a, a struggle from, from that point on. Um, mm. But, you know, what a great last hurrah to have. I always count yeah. that as one of the best handful of days of my life. I worked at the game, covered Essendon winning from 69 points down, 
and went straight from there to the corner hotel to watch the Mark of Cain play one of the great gigs of all time. It was the perfect Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what were your thoughts around that time, Scott, with the, with the comeback yeah, game? I think, um, look, the, the reality was, um, so in isolation, we move on. But on, on reflection, we're a team that were hanging on in a sense. You know, our best was in 2000 and then... From there, the, the decline was ever so gradual. If we didn't get a Brisbane team that were coming into their prime, we win another premiership. Yeah. Um, and you could argue perhaps it would have been different if we had um, less players in that game that were just carrying injuries. Now, yeah. that's no excuse. And the right team was picked because you always back your stars in. But we did have some issues going into that game that we just weren't able to overcome, and Brisbane were yeah. too good on the day. Yeah. yeah. So um, uh, just on a side note, too, when you're talking about uh, Jason Johnson being a chef, uh, can I just throw a plug in to our good friend of the show who, who's been a guest a number of times, Heath Buddha Hocking, who uh, makes, his, makes his own sourdough bread and cheese and garlic bread and it's some of the best bread you would ever have i get it delivered to my house i think i've had it once every fortnight the last probably four months uh but if you go on his instagram uh with heath hocking you'll see it there and you can order it from there so i just want to help him out with that um, do you want to plug your management group scotty <laughs> no no need other than buddha's a great man so i'm always happy for a teammate to get a plug <laughs> So let's go, let's go into the interesting conversation for the day because we have an actual tie coming up. So we could not separate uh, picks for number four and three. So the votes came in and they were aggregated. And just so people understand, there was four of us who voted, 20, and we aggregated all the votes. And we could not separate it, uh, three and four. They came out with the exact same votes. And then when we looked back, Two voted one way and two voted the other way. Uh, so there was no way to separate. So what we did, we just, we just decided to make it an equal third um, because it, didn't, it wasn't right that uh, someone went over the, you know, was picked above for favourites or anything like that. So look, I'll go to my first equal third. Uh, it won't be long. Let's see. And is our great fullback, our great fullback Dustin Fletcher. So he is equal third. Uh, look, I don't know. What, what else can you say about Dustin Fletcher? I mean, you've talked about 200 games for the decade. <laughs> He's played another 200 games for the rest of his career. That's how insane it is. Uh, uh, 2000 Premiership player, two-time All-Australian, best and fairest in a Premiership year, which can never be uh, ignored. Uh, reliable one of the best kicks in the side you'll ever want. Uh, if you want a 60 meter short pass uh, <laughs> or 60 meter pass, uh, he's the one. Um, and look, just a, a great club man, great family, uh, legendary figure at the club. Uh, and it's great to see him still working at the club, doing some, um, uh, feels like some almost like marketing and some, those kind of things. But it, just, yeah, it, it's, it's, I'll go to you, Ron, because as a fan, he's just, it's just one of those plays you just love. You just, you just picture him having Vegemite toast before training in his car and then coming out casually and just doing his thing and being the, the guy next door. And, uh, but just a, a fan, every club would want this kind of guy. Um, and, uh, but an all rights, a seriously good fullback. And in this decade, I think was probably his best decade. Rowan. 
Um, yeah, yeah. Look, I, I think, I mean, the best comment on him is the fact that where did he finish in our top players of the 90s? Wasn't he, like I had him third. Where did he finish officially? Oh, I think he was around about... Oh, we all had our own was... picks. We didn't do yeah, it. Yeah, we didn't do it. Do it. I think well, he was about third or fourth in the, in the yeah. 90s. Well, I, I had him third in my players of the 90s and I had him um, fourth in my players of the noughties. And I, I've got no doubt, and we, I, do, I do remember saying this in our show in the 90s, absolutely no question that his mental attitude and that laid-back nature is probably the foremost quality that got him to 400 games. I, I just... The um, interest in your thoughts, Scotty, you know, the just not beating up on yourself, yeah. not getting too wound up about it. That must have been worth, I reckon, well, an extra 50 games to him. Oh, I'd say close even the 100 because he missed a lot of games. Like, he could have played, you know, 440 if he didn't yeah. keep doing silly, getting rubbed <laughs> out, and he had a bit of injury. Um, and you're right. How many players do we listen to whose bodies are still okay, that they're just mentally worn out. The demands of the game just wear them down. Yeah. Uh, but because of Fletcher's laid-back nature, um, which was certainly no act, was the key. Uh, he was a super player. And um, we talk, obviously, for obvious reasons, around 2000. Best and fairest in a, in a premiership year. But Sheets would throw him forward. If you look at the numbers, he could have kicked all-Australian fullback. 30 goals, 25 goals. So he's probably averaged near on a goal a game. Um, and that was purely out of respect for the back line that, mm. and a tribute to the team. Often we could be 10 goals up halfway through the third, um, give Fletcher run forward to keep him interested. And he'd go forward and kick two or three. Such was the nature. Such was his class. He was had a fantastic closing speed. He could play on uh, the best small forwards, the best yeah. tall forwards. And if you look at um, if the measure of a player is the opponents he played on, well, you could argue that period through the early, well, the mid-90s was when all the greatest full forwards, or most of a lot, when you've got Plugger, uh, Dunstall, Ablett, and then Duck is one of the great centre-half forwards playing. He played well, on the all. Modra, Zoomage, yeah. you know. And yeah. that's why I'd, I'd have Fletcher of the 90s fractionally ahead of Fletcher of the noughties only because of the calibre of the yeah. opponent. He played against. So I'll throw it to you now, but I just want to make this point. This one's very telling. Another reason I like Best and Fairest is that it pays due regard to defenders because they really watch defenders. Now, you don't need any more comment than this. So 11 seasons we're talking about. He finished top three in the Best and Fairest four times, but he finished top 10 in a Best and Fairest in nine of 11 seasons. Mm. You know, what, what more comment do you need than that? He was in Essendon's top best 10 players in nine of 11 seasons we're talking about. Yeah. And considering that he did miss quite a few games in some of those seasons too. I mean, 2003, only 14 games. 2006, 16, 19, 18, 18, 16 games. Is he, he didn't get a full season in in a lot of years. If he, if he had played most of the games, he would have, even finished higher and may have even had more top three finishes. Um, I actually rated him uh, even higher than that. I had him number two um, in my uh, list for this decade. Um, I think he's, as we talked a bit in our, in our last series, the, I think he's one of the all-time great defenders. Um, his 
uh, when they talk about the, the great defenders that sort of come, normally comes down to Savani and Rance and um, Scarlett, uh, but I think uh, the thing that Fletcher has over them, as Scott mentioned a little bit earlier, is his versatility in the plays he could play on. Um, but the other thing too is that he had an incredible ability to zone off. Uh, I remember seeing various, he's one of the few players who could play full back um, or in a key defensive position and actually get tagged because he read the game so well. Um, and, and you see situations where the player that was tagging him was told to run off and create space and he might be 50, 60 metres away and Fletcher would just leave him because he could read the ball so well, he knew it wasn't going to go there and he'd very rarely get caught out. Um, but his ability to impact both hold his opponent and then impact as a third man up uh, was was fantastic. And one of the all-time great kicks uh, in a number of ways, not just the, the 60 metre passes that we're talking about, but his, uh, his kicking... Uh, to the boundary line before there was the deliberate out of bounds was just sensational. The number of times he'd just throw it on a boot and it'd just dribble over the boundary line and he'd still gain 50, 50, 60 metres in distance was a was a fantastic attribute he had. Um, you know, I had him right up there uh, at, at number two in the decade. I thought it was his best decade, even though he didn't play on some of the big names. He very rarely got beaten. The only small chink in his armour was I thought he could get a bit out muscled by some of the real gorillas, but yeah, everything else he did so well. Well, we said we, of all those big names he played on, the one that did get the better of him the most, we didn't even mention that was Sab Rocker. Sab Rocker, yeah. Mm. yeah. Who's the other equal three? Well, uh... <laughs> you're getting the feeling I'm pushing yeah. things ahead of him. <laughs> Let's go to the equal number three. Um, Okay. Well, this is a uh, this is a nice one to talk about uh, because it's our it's our host uh, who's joining the program. Well done, Rob. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I was pretty handy in front of a seat. Yes. <laughs> it's uh, Mr. Scott Lucas. He's our equal third with uh, Dustin Fletcher. Uh, Look, it's always hard to talk about a guy who's looking at you. <laughs> Do you want to but, step out for a couple of minutes? <laughs> I mean, I look personally, I actually had him at number three uh, and had Fletcher at four, and there was a few who had him the other way around. Um, uh, but I, I thought Scott Lucas uh, was a, a, a pretty of a, it was an absolute gun. He's kicked 390 goals for the decade, 201 games. Leading goal kicker, 2006, uh, with 67 goals. In that 2006 season, he was, he was pretty elite. Uh, and I mean, we, we had as a show, we were bragging about Joe Danahar kicking 65 goals uh, two or three years back and thinking like, wow, he's, won, he's all Australian and everything like that. And, and, he's, and that's, that's 65 and playing a, a final, I believe. And this is 67 goals. Runner-up to Favola, from my memory serves me correctly. But... Uh, but then, for me, what, what could have made the difference and why I had him... Hang on, wait, just on that as a comparison, Danaher's kicked his in a side that played finals. Scotty's kicked his in a side that was playing off for a wooden spoon. Yeah, very, very true. So, to, for me, the difference for why I had him at three and not four was the 2003 season, where he's, he's uh, won the best and fairest uh, in 2003 as a defender. 
And I think that's a pretty astonishing achievement, even with Scotty in the room. <laughs> but I, I think that's an amazing to have a best and fairest, to win two best and fairest, and they're, they're completely opposite ends of the ground. Uh, it showed you what he is as a competitor, uh, how he can think through the game. He was the kind of guy... Um, Normally, I usually, you know, I can be a bit hard on some players who I think are pretty goal hungry. He was the only guy that I actually salivated just saying, just turn around and have a shot because I trusted his left foot that much. Uh, that well, I don't think you had to tell him to do that. I think it was going to happen anyway. <laughs> well, it's going to happen anyway, but. <laughs> But but it generally was the right play. Like it, it, like if if he's within sixty meters, it, it is generally you would back him uh, into to score. Uh, as such was uh, such was his skill. But look, before we talk, I actually just want to have a two minute segment uh, with Scott Lucas. And there's one game we've got to talk about, and we all know the game. And I want to talk. I want to talk. Th- talk through with him uh, this game because this is this is one of the most impressive quarters not games you'll ever see on a, on a football field uh, it's it's in Perth against West Coast I'll, I'll bring it up won't be long and this is this is James Hurd's and um and shitty's is it James Hurd's last game pretty sure it's yeah. James Hurd's last game. Yeah, last game we're well behind at three-quarter time and this guy almost miraculously wins us the game, kicks seven goals in the last quarter. Should have kicked eight. He had a trip, if I remember. Um, yep. That was robbed. Yeah, a bit robbed. But Scotty, talk us through this game. Uh, is there is is there anything at three quarter time that actually you thought <laughs> you thought was there any sort of speech or uh, talk us through three quarter time? What came to your mind? No, well, the the funny thing was I started the game a little bit like that graphic you showed at the start. I started the game in the back line um, and played the first quarter down there, then went forward um, at quarter time. Uh, look, my memory, look, basically I got on a bit of a roll. I got really good supply and um, there's a lot more space in a forward line than there is now, as you can see. So you're able to get some good isolation and one-on-ones. And, and look, all I remember is Herdy at three-quarter time saying... Um, you know, it's my last quarter of football. Um, leave me with a memory. Uh, and that was directed at the group. So look, the main part of that last quarter or the game itself that was the issue or the, the memory is that West Coast going into that quarter, I think, were second on the ladder and were facing a home final the next week. That last quarter on percentage, because we didn't quite get there, meant that they dropped a third and went to Port Adelaide and played a final and basically made it very difficult for them them to make the grand final as a result. Um, Yet still, fantastic effort by the crowd. There was a presentation of Sheeds and Hurdy after the game and not one West Coast supporter had left the game. So when you look at that, it was really a fitting tribute for Sheeds and Hurdy by the West Coast fans. And what about that trip at the end? I remember I still get (laughs) broken like that. Yeah. uh, for, for, For number eight. Yeah, number eight. And I played on, and I don't know whether they paid the free kick or not, but I... No, I yeah, didn't pay it. Yeah. So I, I had a shot under a little bit of pressure and missed the goal, I know. So, uh, oh, well. And and the thing I the thing I remember just talking about your career is that the um, that was one of the most dominant 
quarters I think I've ever seen. It was an incredible performance. And I thought, well, this is going to be a period where you're going to come out and dominate for a couple of years. And then the very first game next year against North Melbourne, you did, did your knee. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and really struggled to get over that. But that was really unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, no, when you look at it like that, you go, and then, yeah, going into 2008, uh, I'd had a good pre-season and then to get injured in, yeah, round one and missed 10 or 12 and then had off-season, got back and had off-season surgery and took a while to get going and, yeah, it just didn't, look, I had a great run injury-wise up into that point, but then, yeah, the game, it changes quickly and Sheeds was always mm-hmm. big on, you know, your career goes in a flash and, you know, the game will always continue to challenge you. You'll, as soon as you think you may have it mastered, it'll throw yeah. up uh, challenges. And that was the case there for me. But look, overall, um, yeah, I was very fortunate to, to play as long as I, mm. I did. But uh, yeah, it would have been nice to keep it going for a bit longer. You haven't, you haven't mentioned your most gruesome injury, Scotty. That growth out of your arm <laughs> oh, yeah, had, yeah. had a life of its own. Well, the bursitis, <laughs> every time I fell on it, it would blow up and it became the talking point for a bit. So I think I wore a bit of an arm, get one of those um, mm. sort of guards, just a, a, a tan-coloured guard. So it, it wasn't painful at all, but it certainly... Uh, Caused uh, some discussion. Yeah, so it had its own postcode there for a while, didn't it? Yeah, it did. It was a, an ugly looking thing, and you'd only have to land on it and it'd just blow up. Yeah. Yeah. Right, Neil, you, you've had your go. I'm going to wrap it up quickly because after having worked with this guy on SEN, I'm not used to having his praises sung for longer than about 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, let's move on. Before we start hanging. No, look, I'll, I'll just say this. Um, one of the one of the best kicks of a footy of a key forward I've seen. Uh, yeah. You know, lethal left foot. And it wasn't just the, le- the length of the kicking, it was the um, the speed and penetration of the kicking. He kicked deep. You know, he could kick a ball flat. And I reckon that speed of, of uh, trajectory often really helps if there's players ahead of goal or, in his case, kicking for goal. Um, I think the other thing with Scotty that uh, probably isn't talked about enough is his mobility. Like, he was a genuinely mobile forward. And before it had become really fashionable, I reckon. And that that made him very damaging as well. Um, and the thing about never kicking on the right, well, most left-footers never kick on the right. But why should they? Because they can always turn right-footers inside out. And I think it's been... I am a left-footer myself, so I've got a vested interest in saying this. But I, I do remember reading something about how... Um, it has been sort of, uh, what's the word, you know, with physics or proven somehow that left-footers actually are a better kick of the footy generally than right-footers. Well, Haw- uh, something Hawthorne's, about the angles. Hawthorne's 2008 premiership team was based on that because the data, just yeah. the, the kicking efficiency of left and right. So Hawthorne drafted left-footers. Yeah, yeah, no, re- really good point. Obviously, Hodgie, um, mm. you know, the pick of them and then guy like Sam Mitchell, you couldn't tell what footy kicked. But... Yeah, the mobility, the the long kicking, obviously a, a perfect foil for a great spearhead in Lloydie. And I've rattled off the stats with everyone else. Well, this guy isn't too shabby. So 11 seasons, three top three finishes, including two BNFs. But like Fletch, incredible consistency, seven top 10 finishes in the 11 years. And I, I think, you know, for a key forward... I think that's pretty remarkable because particularly when a side's struggling, it's harder to get that much opportunity. And 
Sorry, that, that leads me to my last point. Oh, God, Lucas, this is making me sick. Um, <laughs> my last point. Don't rush it. Is, <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a big rap for guys that play well in struggling sides. And we talked about it a bit. But this guy did it continually. Uh, yeah, and did. the evidence is there in the best and fairest that he won. So you've got one in a year where Essendon were nearly wooden spooners. Um, and one of Scotty's performances, that, and I always mention it, but it, it just does stick in my head. And it, it is that in the 2001 grand final, you know, we were going under, Brisbane got on top. It didn't come apart, you know, it wasn't a smashing, but right, at, right to the last second of that game, this bloke, and he had the head bandage on and everything, he was hanging in there for his life. Kick four, you know, it was a, it was a great game by him that day. And I think, um, I don't know, that, that, that impressed me as much as any of the um, victories that he played a key part in. So, well done, Scotty. It was a fantastic career and it's been an absolute privilege to watch you play and slightly less of a privilege to have your hand shit on me in the commentary <laughs> box for a few years. Uh, on to number can two, I, man. Can I, just ask, can I just ask you one question, Scott? Um, what led to you going to centre-half back uh, when you did after, after performance? Yeah, so I played about the last six games of 0-2 at centre-half back. And look, I could come up with a great um, story, but it was as much I wasn't playing as well at centre-half forward as I should have been. So I think Sheets, and you talk about at times that preparedness to put players in other positions could be a hindrance. In that case, it certainly helped me. And it just gave me another perspective about, you know, what other good forwards do, but also what forward, how they get over different things and what defenders can do. So it gave me a really good uh, grounding for when I went back to centre forward like that. And halfway through 2003, I think it was just a little bit of matchups and that, that perhaps a couple of key defenders were out of the team. Yeah. And um, it was just out of need that if we can balance it up. And I think um, <laughs> Damien Cupido was playing up forward and he was going okay. He was kicking a few goals. So we didn't have bad uh, goal power up there. So, yeah, I just went down to the back line. Was one of your, just quickly, one of your most exciting moments, the Silvani botched kick uh, from defence and you getting it and kicking it over his head? Yeah. The noise of that crowd was just insane that day. Yeah. Mm. yeah. All right. So we're down to number two. Uh, now it's going to be whoever's number two. I think it's, then it's going to be very obvious who's number one. Mm. Uh, but number two pretty much played alongside Scott Lucas for a lot of his career. And it's the Matthew Lloyd. Matthew Lloyd, well, obviously uh, an amazing career. And if you look at his stats for just this decade, it's pretty insane. Uh, 189 games, 681 goals uh, for the day. Three-time Coleman medalist, eight-time leading goal kicker uh, at, at Essendon, uh, three-time All-Australian, five in his career, 2000 Premiership player, captain 2006 to 2009, won goal of the year 2007, mark of the year 2008. Um, which was a shabby car and for you can only have for a year, if I remember. Um, and names champion of Essendon and number 22 spot. Probably, to be honest, I, I think that he would probably should be a little bit higher. I don't know if that was awarded. Uh, yeah, it, yeah like it was done at the end of 
2002, I think, or yeah, during was, 2002. So two or three, yeah. Yeah, I reckon midway through 02. So therefore, there's a lot of his career left, and hence that's yeah. there the numbers. There's the number. So uh, man, if you, if you yeah. redid it, if you redid it, he would be. He'd have to be top ten. Top ten I at least. So, yeah. yeah. Look, there's not much else to say. I mean, he's. I mean, that that kind of photo I I saw, and it kind of just that's kind of the image I have that he did. He he did things his way, and you know, he's one thing I loved that he he worked out a technique that worked for him, and he was by stats around about the second most accurate goal kicker uh, behind Plugger. So he was very very reliable. I mean, have him and Scotty next to each other and the accuracy is is pretty insane so we're very blessed to have that kind of two forward focus set up and and look obviously a massive name at the club um big media personality um and look how can how can you not argue against an amazing career like that uh i'll go to you rowan uh well there really is nothing left to say um You know, look, he was always bracketed with Scotty and uh, interesting in terms of those stats again, pretty similar. So um, Lloyd, he had two top three finishes over that period and six um, top ten finishes. And again, I think it's not necessarily that easy for a key position player to, you know, get those sort of finishes over a decade in which Essendon's performance started to fall away a bit. You know, look, he really worked on his body strength after he got ragdolled a few times early on and, and that paid off for him. And I think actually, you know, we, we know the good stuff. Great on the lead, superb kick, you know, vice-like hands. But that strength, I think, perhaps gets undersold a bit because he didn't have an obviously, you know, sort of uh, chiseled physique. I mean, you know, he looks quite chiselled there, actually, but not like a, uh, you know, it's not like he looked like Magic Door or someone like that, but he was very, very strong in that upper body particularly and could more than hold his own in the marking contest. So, yeah. um, and I think also, you know, a meticulous uh, preparer, wasn't yeah. he, Scotty? And that really, that really served him well. And, and again, you know, and same with Scotty, to be fair. I mean, uh, mentally... You know, with Fletch, it was having that laid-back nature and that allowed him to play a lot of footy. Lloydy, you know, had incredibly high demands of himself yeah. and and really pushed himself to the nth degree. And I did give that example when we were doing the 90s of how he took to his media career. And I was basically the guy that offered him a job. And he came aboard and he, he said, look, I want to do this properly. What do I need to do? And how do I go about writing it? And what do I look at? And... And look how he's thrived in his media career by being so diligent about it. And he approached his football exactly the same way. And it, it absolutely paid off in spades. That, that's what I... If you ask me to make a definitive sort of two-word um, slogan for Lloyd, I would say consummate professional. Yeah. Extremely single-minded. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the, the great player... Could talk about everything that you already have. The one thing is, and you talk about the kicking accuracy, that there's no secret. Like he just worked on his set shots for hours and hours on end, and he mm. got the results. And you know, mm. it was great—a great example to all the younger players that you know, there's no. What happens on a Saturday is a, a product of what you do Monday to Friday, 
So if you can get your preparation right, you give yourself the best chance. And uh, Lloyd was able to do that. Now, anyone have him at one? And how long did you have to think about your one and two? And I'm preempting number one here. Um, I had I had number one pretty clear cut. Yeah. Ah. Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty clear cut for me too. Yeah. Yeah, it took me half a second. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, so I'm just trying to, to remember. So, yeah. so I, I don't want to cut your lunch here, Scott. But um, so he, he, we all four of us had this number one pick, number one in the nineties too, didn't yeah. we? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Got the same. I mean, there you go. Uh, like, if you want the definitive statement on how good a footballer this mm. bloke is, and I'll let you announce his name. He is our number one player in two decades. Yep. Mm. And, and I reckon if he played a couple of years in the, in the in the teams, I would have had him number one as well. And we are talking, <laughs> of course, about Chris Waterson. Go <laughs> <laughs> on, Scott. I think I say Chris Danaher. Then. Yeah. Uh, well, let's let, let let's get to let's get to number one. Look, I must admit though that when I was writing out his stats, Matthew Lloyd, it was the first time though I'd stopped and thought. Yes, I still think is number one, but it, it, it made me realise, gee, just reading this resume is pretty incredible, though, from Matthew Lloyd. Like, it's like, that's just, that was a lot closer in my memory to being number one when I saw what he achieved. And I went, oh, it's not, it's not a foregone one, number one anymore. Um, Who were the number twos? Just Sorry for interrupt. Who were the number twos for the 1990s then? Well, I, I had O'Donnell. Yeah. I had Michael Lloyd. I had... Oh, yeah, yeah. I think I had Lloyd. Yeah. I think and I had Lloyd two for the 90s and he went back to three for the uh, 2000s. Yeah. Hmm. And, um, and Fletcher went the other way. Uh. You should actually, at some stage, go through and do a cumulative thing for the 90s and 80s as well. Yeah, yeah. And see what actually what ended up. Yeah. I've, I've got all the details there. Anyway, we still haven't said this guy's <laughs> name, so maybe <laughs> so, yes. great, great suspense. Mm. Uh, let's, yep, coming up right now. So look, it's obviously the great man, uh, and and look, it's it's not just because he's obviously the biggest fan favourite. Uh, uh, it, it is it is what it is. He is the best player I've seen at the club for my age. Uh, I reckon if I saw Coleman and, and Reynolds, I might have, you know, there may be another <laughs> a very serious debate. Um, but this guy, um, yeah, he was just a, a fantastic player. He's a, a player that can change the course of a game. Uh, and there was a few players in, in my lifetime where it's like the Ablett seniors, the Careys and the Herds that can, can I feel like, change change momentum in game um, by, by either individual efforts or just will. And, and uh, look, we talked about him a lot. So I'll go to you, Rowan, fairly quick. But I will say, uh, just on a side note, um, I can't express enough, if the Essendon Football Club are hearing this, and I know some of them listen, how much as a fan I've appreciated the Joe Watson and James Hurd and Xavier podcast. Uh, and it's meant a lot, and I want them to understand that from a fan point of view, uh, that this guy should never be lost at the club. He should be embraced. 
And I'm so glad to see great players and great people back at the club doing some great discussions on a podcast. And it's meant a heck of a lot to me in all seriousness. But I spoke a lot about his, who he was as a player last time, but I'll go to you, Rowan. But I just have to say that. Yeah, well, just quickly, that thing about the decades too. So I had Fletcher at number three in the 90s and number five in the noughties. I had heard one and one. Um, so one thing you have to say about Essendon is their, um, their very best players have given them incredible service over long, long periods. Yeah. Um, okay, so, you know, look, we talked about Hurdy at length in the 90s podcast. He was still doing it right to the end of his career, you know. Like, he, I, he could have I feasibly could have played on for, I reckon, several more years, maybe in an adjusted role. But, you know, the greatest comment on him for me was that capacity to decide I'm going to win the game or I am now going to um, lift my team and just go and do it. And, and, you know, we saw that on that many occasions. Um, most memorably, I think, in that 0-4 game against West Coast when he had the 15 touches in the last quarter, kicked the match-winning goal, etc., etc. He did it on Anzac Day repeatedly. One of those games in which he won the Anzac medal dominated the whole last quarter. Um, you know, he did it on the big occasion. Um, I, I've seen a handful of players in my life who could say, I am now going to decide I'm going to become the primary influence on this game and just go and do it. He's one. Gary Ablett Senior, Wayne Carey, Lee Matthews. That's probably about it. You know, like, so he's in rarefied air. We know he did it all over the ground. We know he was an inspiring captain. And statistically, this says it all. So um, he's got... Uh, two best and fairest wins in the decade, 03 and 07. So he was, he's won the BNF in his last season. There you go. What better proof do you need that he could have played on? And 34 disposals in that last game with um, that's where the Scott kicked the seven too. Yeah, four yeah. Uh, top three finishes. And over the 11 years, eight top 10 finishes. So, And, and it's funny, um, just I've been half obsessed with watching this Last Dance documentary uh, the last couple of weeks, and I'm, I'm obviously a mad Jordan fan, but the the, the discussion about Jordan's will to win, uh, <clears throat> just on that aspect alone, I, I always found James Hurd had that kind of ingredient as well. He's obviously a different personality to Jordan, but his absolute desire and whatever it meant to his body getting hit or whatever, his desire uh, to win uh, was pretty incredible to watch. You know, it was just something I thought of when I was watching the documentary. Uh, there was a lot of differences, but just that, just that sheer desire to to be successful in everything he did, and and uh, he was like that in business and everything. You know, he whether he studied whatever he did, he always wanted to make sure he was manic in getting the best out of himself in in whatever he did. And uh, yeah, obviously, just a legend of the club. I think one of the things that shows just how a high regard he was held in the club too was the fact that Champions of Essence you're talking about was voted in 2002 and he was named number three in front, in front of Billy Hutchinson who kicked, had seven best in Paris, only behind um, Coleman and uh, Dick Reynolds who were you know, two of the all-time greats of the, of the team. And he still had another six really good seasons after that. 
um, if it was voted at the end of his career, he might have, well, Dick Reynolds and Coleman would well, be hard to push out. That's a really interesting point because I think they are sort of almost untouchable in yeah. terms of status at Essendon. But if you're absolutely fair income about it, Coleman played from 49 to 54. So he played six seasons. 98 games. Heard would have to be ahead of Coleman and pretty bloody close to Reynolds. Yeah, yeah, you would have thought so. And if it wasn't for the, uh, the foot injury he had, um, who knows if he wouldn't have won more Brownlow medals. Yeah. Yeah. Could, have, could have easily done that. That really ended. But uh, I'm with uh, what Scott was saying before. The, the best Essendon player I've seen, and um, to me, there was actually daylight between him and the best I've seen. Uh, uh, Lloyd, uh, Fletcher, Lucas, all fantastic players, but Heard was really just on the... No I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd have him. I'd have him. I'd have him number one. I, I'd have... Um, gee... I'm just thinking, I've never actually thought about it before. I'd have um, be a very interesting discussion between Madden, Watson and Lloyd for the next on the list, I reckon. Yeah, I'd, I'd have, I'd have, yeah, the next on the list, yeah. But I definitely have heard it. Mm. So what was he like to play with, Scott? As a, uh, as a... Yeah, fantastic. I mean, I think Scott summed it up well. And it's funny, that's gathered from watching him, but playing him very similar, like his will to win and compete and his desire to be the best, yeah, is without peer. Yeah, mm. he's just incredibly driven. And in many ways, you know, he had those injuries and that, so he needed to to get over them. Yeah. But also, um, you know, he wasn't possibly in the top five most talented players mm. I played with. So that's a mark of his, you know, the intangibles, the willpower, the effort, the preparation and that desire that just went above his ability to kick a football or mark a football. You've led led with your chin there. So who are the the more talented players (laughs) than him? Well, you know, number 20 last week, Dean Rioli, would be close to the pure, in pure talent. Yeah. McCurry was an incredible yeah. talent. Now, if you're asking me for a list across those decades, I'd have Merck's extremely high. Yeah. Uh, is one of the best players I played with. Um, but Hurdy was the sum of all his parts. Yeah, I'll say this. I'll say this. And, you know, I, I saw Ablett, et cetera. I have, I've never seen another player as good at ground level on their knees than Hurd. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. no one, you know, like you knew he could be off balance on the ground, on his knees, but if he got his hands on the ball, you knew it was going to go to Weston's advantage. Yeah. And he's yeah. absolutely number one at that facet. And his attribute that perhaps, and I think in later years was fully appreciated, was how tough. Like he was a, such a, mm. a beautiful player for want of a better expression, but he was so hard and tough, like summed up with, you know, he's, he had his skull caved in and then eight weeks later he comes back in the first contest, he runs back with the fly to the ball and nearly gets knocked out again. Yeah. I was like going to was, mention that. Yeah, he was that, genuinely, those... yeah, genuinely tough, but in a different way mm. to how we generally regard toughness. Yeah. Mm. yeah. He's just body lined the ball and just didn't care. And, 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 and sorry, similar to a, a Mercedes, which I mentioned before, the, the game was one or two seconds ahead 
with him than any other player on the field. Like he just knew mm. the, the times mm. where he knew where the ball was going, how he read the play was just so far superior. It felt like to me as a fan, uh, just watching that, how much he could see the game unfolding before any other player would, was, mm. was such a, which is such a great attribute, which is why he got wow. to contest and, what, and why he had that license to go in the midfield whenever he wanted to, because he really could contribute quite dynamically when he went there. And near impossible to coach. It was just one of those yeah, uh, yep. skills that he had. Yeah. yeah, that he just knew where it was going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, almost well, done. Congratulations, everyone. We've, 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 we've finally finished our countdown. Look, I, I can't thank you enough, Scotty, uh, for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure for us. As look, we're, we're, we do a podcast for two or three years, but we, you know, to, to even meet and, and, and have a great chat with you just about footy. It's, it's, it's such an honor and such a pleasure for us. And I can't thank you enough for spending the time because the first show was like an hour and 40 minutes. So I apologize for that. But uh, tonight's... Yeah, it, was good. it was good how we sort of hurried this one on. A bit. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> it finished three minutes earlier. Yeah. So thanks to Rowan. Yeah. And uh, I'm still missing Rowan's son's cameo this week. So I was hoping, you know, I was hoping there was going to be a yell out somewhere. But oh, well. no, no, I, I, I did play it back to him though. And he wanted to know exactly what time so he could play it to all his mates. He was very, <laughs> very proud of that. So, uh, so again, thank you very much, Scotty. No worries. Uh, Cheers. Uh, thank you, uh, Rowan, for obviously joining us. Fully footyology. Look, just a quick one, Rowan, and, and maybe even for Scotty as well. With the, with the announcements this week, it looks like we're around the June 11th, between June 11th and 18th possible start for both of you what does that mean for both of you as far as being play manager does it really do you really start to go okay we're really ramping up now and uh, uh yeah look it's been on scott it's been ongoing i mean the last six or eight weeks we've had constant dialogue with our players a lot of it's about you know the welfare and how they're going now that changes into preparation to play uh, i think that mid-june date seems to be reported quite a lot um it looks like they're still trying to work through um, the issues with the south australian and western australian governments on uh, quarantining etc and then once they can figure that out to a satisfactory level really push on with an announcement of back to train i think right now the government the state laws differ slightly so the afl are keen to maintain equality and there's still players Mm -hmm. in quarantine in Adelaide and Perth. So they'll want those players to come out, look to get training again and build up for a resumption. But uh, yeah, look, it's, um, it's important for our industry and it's important for you guys as fans that just want to see some football. I think we're all looking forward to it. Uh, how how complex, are as well. how complex, by the way, is all these players contracts at the moment with the, the talk of obviously reduced pay and everything like that. And they've obviously got set contracts. Uh, is how, What's the complexity around that? Is it a whole bunch of variance letters of contracts? Or? Yeah, yeah, there will be. Basically, there'll be a lot of variations. And um, I mean, if we go, if we play into November, November 1 is the start date for the 2021 contract. So if you're playing football oh. in November, are you playing on a 2021 deal or have you rolled over a 2020? Like, there are so many questions that yeah. need to be answered that will have to be worked through as well as a CBA. But I think first and foremost, the priority is to get back 
to playing football and then yep. uh, work around a lot of the other issues down the track. Hmm. Now, Mr. Rowan, what is, is footyology? Is that starts ramping up after your countdown finishes in, in 12 days? I don't know. I've sort of got used to no footy. I, I sort of <laughs> like it this way. I might, uh, I might bear it gracefully. No, no, we'll, we'll crank it up. Um, the podcast will go back to two times a week uh, yeah. once the games start again. Just, I'll make this quick, but uh, like I've written a column today for Australian Community Media and um, it's sort of the first time in two months I've actually allowed myself to think about what might happen on the field. Like I just haven't even been able to think about yeah. it, you know, because it's too far out of sight. And now we look like getting that sort of mid to late June start. I've, I've actually started thinking about it. And this is one to theorise about. And let's not do it now for Christ's sake. But <laughs> I reckon the way this season is going to be set up and the way that we've had that two-month break, I reckon as a, sides are still learning on the job the longer a season goes on. And I reckon the sides that are going to find it tough are the sides that are bringing in, that have a lot of young players. They're going to struggle to get the development they're used to with the not being able to play at that second tier level, um, fewer staff, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got that factor. Um, I think sides that have a considerable number of new players who'll be part of their best 22, e.g., I was very bullish about St Kilda pre-season. But I'm now thinking, you know, you bring five senior players, and I'm talking about Hill, Ryder, Jones, Howard and uh, Butler, they've got to learn to gel with the other guys on that side. They've, they've done that for two pre-season games. A lot of that learning on the job happens as the games unfold. They're not going to have the benefit of that now. Mm -hmm. And I think sides that are trying to change the way they play, and he said with a bit of anxiety. Essendon is doing that. I think it makes the Bombers' job a bit harder. I yeah, think Fremantle are trying to do that. And I think it makes their job a bit harder too. And Fremantle, incidentally, have now got the second youngest and second least experience playing West in the competition. So they're going to find it tough. I think, and I, you know, look, I could be completely wrong, but I just have a hunch that this is going to be a year for a steady, established, senior, Richmond. strong body <laughs> team to, to win. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, well uh, said. Makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, All right. Well, well I've see, I managed to get that three minutes back. Uh, so <laughs> good, thanks again, for Neil, for joining no us. Yeah, no worries. Uh, thanks, guys, everyone. Have a great Cheers. night. And this is Lunchtime Catch-Up Podcast signing off.